Hello Cliff. Welcome to our YouTube channel. It's nice to meet you here in Westport, Connecticut on our way to Omaha. Um, who are you? My name is Cliff Sosen. Uh, I'm the founder and uh, manager of the CAS Investment Partners. Since when have you launched your investment partnership? Uh, I launched CAS Investment Partners in... Um, I started putting it together in July of 2012, mm -hmm. but we actually um, started operating in on October 9th of 2012. That's nice. What did you do before that, before, before your own partnership? <laughs> Prior to that, I, I spent five years at UBS, where I worked um, in something called the Fundamental Investment Group, which was um, essentially, essentially an equity long-short investing business um, within the UBS Investment Bank. During that time, you say in your letters that you developed your own philosophy and um, we want to take this interview as a chance to do a deep dive in this uh, philosophy. <laughs> um, my idea is to start with the process, like from idea generation to buy or sell. Um, so my first question is, where do you get your ideas from? Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think there's a desire amongst people to have a, a simply explained regimented process that feels like turning a crank and results in, in good stock mm -hmm. ideas that make a lot of money. My impression is that the, the way it really works is far more organic than that, especially at sort of the top of the funnel. So um, the way that I start thinking about a particular idea is essentially random. Organic's a nice word. Mm -hmm. Random is true. Um, as I develop an idea, um, what I'm, as I look at India initially, what I'm trying to do is, is draw from sort of a set, my understanding of the world, which is really you could think of as a set of mental models mm -hmm. that explain parts of the world, and apply it to that particular circumstance and see how well it fits. And if it fits well, you start to develop a working hypothesis about something. And so what I'm describing is maybe a process where you start almost randomly at the top of the funnel and then you become more regimented as you try to apply these mental models and then you work your way down into, um, once you have a hypothesis, it really becomes more, more a process of um, attempting to invalidate your hypothesis, you know, analogous to the scientific method or whatnot. And so um, that would be a process where uh, you, think of, you think you understand the dynamics that are at play that allow a company to succeed. And then you're thinking about what you should be able to observe uh, in the world, in the ecosystem, that would be consistent with that hypothesis. And you then go into the world or ecosystem, mm -hmm. you do diligence, and you try to figure out whether or not what you're seeing is actually um, uh, consistent or inconsistent with your hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And if it's inconsistent, then um, you at very least need to change your hypothesis or throw it out altogether. Um, if it's consistent, um, then you aren't sure you're right, but you're incrementally more confident in being right. And if you can develop a, a theory for why a company is successful based on, you know, mental models that are well-founded and 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 unlike and make and reasonably reliable, and then you can make a lot of predictions based on that. You start to develop um, a pretty reasonable chance at correctly forecasting the you know the future of a business within a narrow enough margin that you can then make a good bet. And so then the last piece really is that you sort of compare what you think might happen based on your understanding with what's implied by the price or what you need to have happen to be have an investment be profitable. And that's it. I mean, it, it's, it sounds so simple, but, uh, um, but that, that's, that's just that's what we do. But there's the first step where you get her certain name 
maybe. Yeah, that I mean company. that's that's totally random. I, I you know, um, you know, I, I you know, I I've I have invested in uh, all manner of situations. I've I've run screens. I wouldn't say running screens produces any particularly better ideas or worse ideas. I've um, you know ended up uh, looking at things for one reason or another, and then passing on them and coming back to them years later. I've um, had ideas that smart friends uh, found and recommended. The the you know the key on on sort of the, the ideas front. I mean, I don't have a way to understand whether an idea is a good investment prior to understanding it to any important degree. Um, so at the sort of in terms of what to look at next, uh, the process is essentially random. There are a few things that I like. You know, I, I you tend we're looking for very few. Very extraordinary investments, right? So you tend not to get very extraordinary investments in situations where, in sort of normal times, in situations where the company looks like a lot of other companies. Um, you're unlikely, um, you know, the sunset can't happen, it's just it's, it's less likely. So a unique business is probably gonna be more interesting to me than, you know, a not unique business. Um, just another bank versus, you know, um, something else. Um, and, but businesses can be unique in subtle ways. I mean, just another bank might seem like just another bank, but it may have some attributes of it that are actually quite unique. And um, so, anyway, something unique is, is a helpful first step. Um, but really, I would say what really happens is I start looking at it, and I start to make progress in that as I start to understand what the business is doing, what the people, you know, what management says, and when they describe the business in, in public or whatever, or the public materials, it starts to indicate to me various mental models that I can apply to the situation. I start to think that, oh, that makes sense. Maybe what's happening is this. I've seen something like this before. And that's where you start to um, decide that something might be interesting. Can you maybe some, uh, name some examples for those mental models? Yeah. Um, well, sure. Um, you mean the mental models or the application? You mean the mental models? Um, Both is fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a, a simple one um, that I'll give you kind of two, right? And they're both related to, to Carvana, which I think we'll talk about later. But um, you know, a simple one is, is that one thing that's really important for Carvana over time and that it benefits from is just economy, what I call economies of trust. And this is something everyone sort of knows, but the idea being that if you can become a trusted counterpart um, in, you know, in a system, um, there's just an enormous amount of value that's unlocked for everybody. And Carvana, they're competing with car dealerships that are by and large not trusted. And they are earning people's trust in this industry. And that produces a, two big benefits. The first is it makes it easier for people to do business with you so they do more business with you. And the other is it's a huge competitive advantage because people, why would anyone do business with someone they don't trust when they can do business with someone they do trust? Um, and it takes, it's very hard to duplicate because you know, trust is earned over a long period of time. And so you know, that would be a, a simple one, a, a more nuanced, complicated mathematical one, um, you know, is that if you look at um, industries where people sell different goods, unique goods, um, and there's a small number of competitors, um, mm -hmm. there's some game theory that describes um, how the competitors will price those goods. And what I'm referring to here is um, what, what would be uh, called in microeconomics a single-stage hoteling game. So here, I mean, the classic example of a hoteling game is you have two ice cream vendors on a boardwalk, and um, 
people pick ice cream vendors, you know, based on the price that they charge. And the question is, what price should an ice cream vendor charge, given where the other ice cream vendor is? And it turns out that you know, there's, it, you don't actually just charge in a, in a perfectly competitive market. You would just charge marginal cost. There'd be no profits. Um, but if you imagine two two vendors, one at thirty three, the other at sixty six, on a hundred, you know, unit long boardwalk, you know, the vendor that's at thirty three or sixty six has. An incentive is willing if they charge if they both charge marginal costs they split the market equally, but they neither makes any money. So both vendors have an incentive to raise their price somewhat, and they'll give up some market share if the other guy doesn't raise price. But they'll make more on the market share they get, and so they'll make more money doing that, independent of what of the other person's decision. And since they both actually make that decision at the same time, what happens is they both raise price a bit, and they actually sort of redivide the market share more evenly, and then you keep doing this. Um, and you end up getting to an equilibrium where there are economic profits you know, for the competitors. Um, that's the single stage game. That, and, and, and you see that all over the place. Not think, that's geographic space, but if you think about brand space, you, know, you have two types of pizza uh, that are different, that have different preferences. Or in the case of used cars, I have a unique used car. It's a, it happens to be a particular color and style and trim and everything else. And you have a unique used car, but they're different. And there are different, there are consumers who would be willing, at the same price, who would prefer mine over yours. And as I, as I change, increase the price differential between the two, um, there's a you know an elasticity of demand effect, but um, that means you're playing a hoteling game. Um, by the way, the multi-stage hoteling game is if you could locate your ice cream vendor, where would you put it? And the funny outcome there is that both of them end up putting it right in the middle, and they make no money. But so that's why if you're if you're Ford, you, you make a car that's just like Toyota, uh, and you try to make them as similar as possible. But the so the second mental model though, in the case of that I'm pointing out, is also applicable to Carvana because it deals with the possibility that there is a competitor right now. There, I think there's a reasonable chance there won't be a big viable competitor. But if there is, they're not, even if they're competing in a non-cooperative way, the, the non-cooperative equilibrium should be one where both of them make a lot of money per unit. And it's a very big market. And so that's why, uh, that's another good reason um, that I like the business. So, you know, two very different mental models, right? One really drawn that you would sort of you could find in like a microeconomics textbook that has like math and like we could keep going. Another that's you know squishier that you would read about in like a Buffett letter or something where it's like you know like, you know if people trust each other, a lot of good things happen, and being part of an excess of trust or better controlling an excess of trust is really valuable. Um, and you know that isn't I don't think you find that in, you know that often in you know, microeconomic seminars, but it's they're both true. So I try to draw them all and then apply them to these situations, mm -hmm. understand it. What makes you pass an idea? You said it before that you sometimes pass to an idea and come back years later. Um, well, I mean, there's lots of reasons that I pass an idea. You know, the most common reason is that it's a reasonably comprehensible business and it's priced about right. Um, you know, the world's competitive, and, and that obviously happens most of the time. Um, another reason is that. I either don't have the mental models to make good predictions about the business over time, or I do, and those predictions are that it's actually very hard to predict. Um, so, um, you know, I think of fashion as sort of intrinsically unstable because when people, um, it's not necessarily always the case, but you can think about there are certain elements of fashion where it is important to me to wear something different. People buy, you know, fashionable items to signal that they have money and taste. And it's the taste element that's complicated, that complicates things. Because 
um, it, quite, it, can be it can be the case that buying something different than everybody else shows that you have taste. And in that sense, the thing that used to be a way to signal having taste can actually become a way of signaling that you don't have taste anymore because you're not buying the new thing. And you know this isn't clearly true in every fashion category, and, it's, and I don't actually know all the answers there, but it's one of those things where you can look at businesses where there's a lot of trend risk. Um, and I find them to be fairly difficult to predict. And maybe I just don't have the tools. Maybe there's a, someone else has a mental model to understand it, and I don't have it. Um, or maybe it can be developed. Um, or maybe it's one of these things, you know, think about quantum mechanics, right? There are some things that are just not knowable. Um, and, and so, you know, that's one. There's a, a, a book I read that described an experiment someone did, um, which I thought was great. It was before um, the days of um, uh, downloading music. And the, these researchers, um, what they did was they, they got 100 um, unique uh, pieces of music by artists. And they then uh, got teenagers and they created a website. This is a novel at the time. They created a website and they allowed the teenagers to download the music and listen to the website and also to comment on the website about the music and to rank the music. Um, and they then had the teenagers um, you know, engage in this. And what happened over time was there was a ranking of popularity of the music in terms of frequency of download and, and review and whatever else. Um, what they didn't tell the teenagers was that they'd actually divided them into a separate, distinct sets of worlds. So you would be originally randomly assigned to one world or the other or the other or the other. And they all started with the exact same set of music. But what happened was as those worlds evolved, the music that rose to the top and the music that fell to the bottom became, were actually totally different. And the, there was a very weak correlation. Like if you were the best in one uh, universe, so to speak, you were probably slightly higher ranked on average in the other universes, but it was a very weak effect. And the dominant effect was chance. And um, so if you think about how certain works of art have become, you know, why the Mona Lisa is the Mona Lisa and other works of art are you know, just works of art, um, there is it probably a meaningful kind of self-reinforcing chance-based phenomenon that's happening. And um, that, my point on, on that is that there are just some things that are intrinsically unpredictable. And so sometimes you either know something's intrinsically unpredictable, or you just don't know how to think about it. And, or frankly, it's, mis it's just priced about right. You already mentioned two criteria like you like on businesses, like predictability and price. What are the other criteria that make you like a business? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I'm looking for businesses that are going to do very well over a very long time, that I can get at a price that doesn't reflect that, that are run by sensible people. Um, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Um, predictability is an interesting term. You know, it depends on what you mean by predictability, mm -hmm. right? The ability to predict the performance of a business every day, every week, every month, every year can be nice. It can simplify your life if you're analyzing a company. But, you know, there are plenty of businesses that can be great businesses that maybe are predictable over, on average, over 10 years, but maybe not predictable every day. Because um, maybe they serve a volatile end market. And, you know, I, you know think, of, um, think of someone who's trying to value, like, a, a company that sells parts into the new car space. 
it may very well be that like you, for some reason, technological, manufacturing scale, whatever it is, are very likely to make you know ten dollars a car, you know, no matter what, for as long as cars exist. But every year, the number of cars made might vary substantially. So it might be very hard to predict how much money they're going to make every year. But a sensible guess at the number of cars made over the next ten years is is, is easy enough to do. And so, um, you know, the predictability. I don't know. You, you can you can take predictability too far. But predictable. But what would be key there would be the predictability of the ten dollars per car. Right. That would be the bit that would be, you'd be focused on. So it depends on what you're trying to think about. You mentioned the sensible people. Uh -huh. Like, what importance does management play for you? <laughs> This has been an area I've evolved a lot over time. Um, when I started, I probably would have told you, look, I, I generally am kind of screened for crooks. Um, you know, but my general sense is that management's on average roughly average, and I can find good businesses at cheap prices, and, and you know, with average management, you know, it'll be fine. Um, over time, I have started to develop some real perspective on that. Um, it's it'll be interesting to see whether or not this is right. Um, but you know, in general, um, what I, there's a lot of ways to think about this. But the way I've tried to put it is, I want management teams who provide well-reasoned and sensible business answers to business questions, and. Um, What does it mean? Why did you decide to invest in this market versus this market? Why did you decide to buy this supplier? Why did you do, you know, ask why they made their decisions. And then listen to the answers. And if the why is a reason that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of someone who is going to own this business for 100 years and is trying to make it maximize its profits, then You know, it's well it's well reasoned, and, and they're thinking from kind of the right principles. Then, then that's probably indicative of someone making good decisions running the company. If the why is sort of poorly thought out, or not thought out, or driven by by factors that um, aren't consistent with what you want, um, then you know that's that's a problem. Like why? Well. Um, I thought shareholders would value a higher growth, lower capex company. Like really? Like <laughs> that's a terrible reason, right? Um, you know, or or you you know. Whereas, and it's important to not judge by outcome, right? So why why did you make that terrible decision that ripped up a lot of money? Well, you know, here was how I was thinking about it. Here here was what I thought was was a reasonable set of outcomes. Here's why I thought these were going to be the better outcomes. And then we did it, and we learned this, and it was a disaster. You know, that can be a great answer, and that can be indicative of a great management team. Um, so I'd say that's one piece: re well-reasoned, sensible business decisions. Um, you know, and, and that's also kind of a measure of intelligence, right? I mean, they're not if they're just making dumb decisions, right? That'll come through. Um, and then you know, there's an element I think. You know, management teams are a product of the culture they're brought up in, and or brought to, or whatever. They're, they're, they're not totally. It's not as though someone sits on top of the company and like makes the company what it is. It's much more organic than that. Mm -hmm. Companies are sort of li are living things with a lot of relationships between people. Companies shape management. Management shapes companies. That's right. There's a, there's a relationship between them. That that's right. Um, and you know, for a couple of observations there. One, the right management depends on the situation. All companies. You know, think about companies as little societies. They all have different norms and values and expectations. And you know, the way you signal. Um, importance and relevance at Google versus the way you signal importance and relevance at Procter Gamble is probably very different. And so the types of people and the behaviors they're going to undertake 
uh, in order to be successful vary a lot. Um, and so the type of leadership that they're going to uh, want and need uh, will, will vary a lot. Um, but in general, um, I think you can try to sort of um, just ask yourself simply whether or not you want to work for this person and whether this person would inspire you to, to, to do your best and um, whether you get a sense that people there, the term I've, I've sort of come, come around to is, is you want to invest in firms where the people feel energized. Um, you know, I think energized is like when you look at organizations that really accomplish a lot, or if you look at Apple under Jobs or Pixar under uh, during its heyday, or, or um, you know the, the Apollo moon landing, or whatever, you know, the, the word that comes to mind is energized. Um, and so, if, if you can create a place where where people feel energized, and you'll you won't get that talking to the management team so much. You'll have to, first of all, you can almost just feel it. If you walk into the office, you can almost just feel it. Um, but then you can talk to former employees or talk to you know current employees, and you'll just get a sense that uh, people are really excited to be a part of this team and um, anxious to help each other, and equally importantly, anxious to ask for help. Um, on the asking for help thing, it's totally unintuitive that um, you know there was a great what what you want in an organization is a f great deal of, of, of freewheeling intermingling of ideas. Um, and if you want them to be kind of creative and pr productive and, and whatnot. And freewheeling and intermingling of ideas and of information. And um, in order to achieve that, you need, you need, people need to trust each other. They need to be willing to look foolish. Um, they need to be able to um, um, you know, j just generally, uh, they need to ask for help when they need it. They need to offer help you know, when, when, when it's asked for. And they need to do it without necessarily reciprocity. So like, it can't be that Bob helps you know, Janet and Janet helps Bob. It has to be that Bob helps anybody and Janet help, helps anybody and help. And so you get more transmission of help through the system. Um, one way to think about it is that you know, uh, reciproc like there's a, in the economy, we solve the transaction for goods and services with money, right? But in, in, a, in an organization, you know, you can't transact for like, will you come help me with my Excel project for, you know, I'll pay you three dollars. Um, and so what you do instead, but so people tr transact. The problem is that you're kind of left at barter. If people, if you don't have a culture where people just help everybody, you're left at barter. So you get a whole lot less transactions. And so you can make the economy, so to speak, much better if you can add, infuse it with a sense where, pe where people just sort of are, there's no us in team, no I in team, and I'm here to help, and like anyone who needs help. And, and the hardest part about that in some sense is people asking for help. Because you need to look vulnerable and stupid. Like I don't know, I didn't understand what we were talking about. Like, can you explain this to me? There's this reading on this dial that makes no sense to me. Like, I've never seen it there before. Like, but I forget. Like, can you help me? If you do things like that, then like the you know good things happen. Um, and one of the, the there's two pieces that things I read that really inspired my thinking on, along these lines. But um, uh, Give and Take by Adam Grant is a book kind of about this. Um, I'm actually reading a book now called uh, The Rainforest, which is sort of describing, using those same ways of thinking to describe why Silicon Valley is so productive. Um, and, and then also there's a great Harvard business case about um, Shell. I think it was Shell, one of the big energy companies, and how they basically had all these um, really tough you know, roughnecks um, engage in, in trust-building exercises. Uh, and what they found was that by doing that, they radically reduced the frequency of uh, accidents. And um, the theory that they had was that it was this idea that you know if, if people 
feel that they can be more vulnerable, they're more likely to ask for help. And when they ask for help, information like, I don't know what that, what that dial means, but it seems to be at a level I haven't seen before, that information transmits to the organization and kind of gets a response versus someone sort of saying, oh gosh, that's a problem. I need to prove to everyone I'm smart. Let me go down to my room and like read the manual, um, which could you know lead to the whole thing blowing up. So long answer, uh, but you want a, an organization that, um, you know, where the people, the organization itself seems to have the right norms and values, seems to be energized, seems to be a place where people are collaborating well, um, where everyone's kind of pulling in, you know, well aligned. Um, and then the leadership needs to kind of be the sort of people who foster that, um, not domineering, you know, someone you'd want to work for. I mean, a simple test is, would you want to work for that person? Um, would that person inspire the best out of you? And if the answer is no, you know, then you just have to factor that into your range of expected outcomes. Thank you very much for the first part of our interview. We continue the discussion in the second part. Excellent. <laughs>